0: We're here to make profit. We're here to make sure that we move things out of the warehouse into our customers' warehouses as effectively as possible, as quickly as possible. If
1: they think that's their purpose and goal, then they're not focused on anything. This is often missed in organizations. Welcome to the Measure Success podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. RJ Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy is built to make strategy work for small to medium. And frankly, it could work for any size organization. We do this by designing world class strategic plans, but more importantly, help keeping you accountable to actually get it done. To learn more, go to 40strategy.com. Don't want you to forget we have our book out, Lost at CEO, Amazon bestseller in 12 different categories at launch. We have received incredible reviews for this, and this is a great book to think about when doing your next strategic planning and how to become a better leader. You can find this on amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, and of course, Audible as well. Well, with that, I'm really excited to have our guest, Jimmy Burrows, here. Jimmy is a leadership expert on a mission to change the way to achieve business results. With over two decades of experience as an officer in the British military and a top record of success as a people leader in global organizations as well. Jimmy and his team have helped leaders and their teams and some of the world's leading organizations get off The Burnt Out Ledge, this is the tough part. And this is, I'm really looking forward to hearing Jimmy's own story about this today where you're gonna learn about that. And they actually use real science to help solve these problems combined with dealing with the challenges, how to overcome them. He has a wonderful book called Beat Burnout, Ignite Performance. That I encourage you to look up. We'll talk a little bit about that today. And he has his own podcast that I'm actually going to be on here and, and relatively soon. So I'm excited about that process. And also Jimmy has some fun time and we'll talk about his personal part, but he lives in Mexico. You might find him scuba diving. He also lives in the hills and likes running around in central Mexico as well. So Jimmy, welcome to the MeasureAssess podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Carl. Wow, that was
1: uh, quite the introduction. I'm I'm in esteemed company, clearly, with all your amazing achievements as well. No, Jimmy, we've been having a lot of fun because we were just, once again, prepping to be on yours. And we have so many commonalities, right? And I like to talk about in strategic planning, you have to focus on people process and systems and i would say often is the people is the most important component and that's where you focus and spend your time on but what the challenge is right is when a lot of us are high achievers you know if you're listening to this show you're probably a high achiever and if you are listening to jimmy's show you're probably a high achiever but the problem with this high achievers is, is sometimes we get into paths where we burn out right and we we don't do the things we're doing so before we go into your story Why don't you tell us about your business and how you're making a difference in the world?
0: Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. There are so many ways of looking at high performance. There's high performance, low performance, there's profitable, not profitable. We essentially have come up with a new scale, which is burnout to high performance. And the reason being that when people are high performers they can suddenly start to erode their performance their energy levels their productivity the way they feel about the world because of some of these habits that they've got and some of the things they're doing with their team and the people around them and the way they organize and operate their ways of working and that brings them down towards burnout and it's kind of like that plug hole effect you don't notice it at first but by the time you're in it it's almost too late so what our business does is essentially partners with those leaders and shows them how to create better ways Ways of working with their team. And it's very people centric stuff. So I can give you a couple of very quick examples. Does our team all know why our team exists and what we're meant to be doing and why? That's a really simple conversation to have. Not an easy conversation to have, but a very simple one. So we teach them these simple things and make it easy to do by facilitating. Another one might be Do we actually all trust each other or are we all watching out over our shoulders, watching our backs? Is there low trust? So we help teams to build trust. And so we have these 38 elements that we can pick and choose from based on the diagnostic that we do with an organization. We take them through a ways of working program, and then we support them ongoing with whatever they need. But the idea is to get them self-sustaining through better ways of working, which maintains or ideally enhances their performance.
1: I love when you talked about the concept of trust, right? Because, you know, it's interesting you're probably familiar with Stephen M.R. Covey's book, Speed of Trust, right? And the core title itself is brilliant, right? When you have trust in your organization, things move Faster. And when you don't have trust, they stop. You know, people do not believe that the person behind them and then things break down. So I'm curious about this trust component. What do you do with your teams? You know, when you're working with organizations, how do you help really create? and develop that trust more.
0: Yeah, you know, this is, I'm, I'm interesting you brought up Stephen Covey, I'm halfway through his other book, Trust and Inspire at the moment, which is really, really interesting and aligned with a lot of the stuff we do. You know, trust is, to most people, it's a pretty nebulous concept. You know, if you say to people, define trust, you'll get a load of buzzwords. How do you know you trust somebody? Oh, I'm not really sure, but I know when I don't trust them, it's much easier to define. Like They're untrusted with you, I don't feel good about it. So what we've tried to do is to make a very simple framework around the concept of trust. And I'm a scuba diver, as you mentioned at the start. And what we talk about initially when we talk about trust is when you're at the surface snorkeling, You can see some stuff, but it's not too dangerous and it's not too risky and you can just get out of the water really quick. But if you were to then dive really deep to the deep depths, the black, consequences are higher. It's harder to get in and out of. You need more training and it's a bit higher pressure and you might feel like it's more risky. And trust is exactly the same. When you're at the surface with surface level trust, like we just play nice and talk about the weather, then it's not too risky. But also the gains are not there. You can't see things that you can see when you're in deep trust. But equally, when you're revealing things to people when you're in deep trust then there's bigger risks for both parties you can't just go from snorkeling to 100 meters you have to work your way down gradually through the layers so in our workshops that we do we talk about what are those four layers of trust moving through different levels and then the second piece of the work is cool so now i understand there's different layers of trust and i can move my way between those layers what are the levers that i can actually pull how do i make this a process or a system i can follow or something that's tangible and so we have an acronym we Use called service. And we know that service leadership is generally based in helping others and supporting others. So we have this seven-point framework that people work through. And I'll very quickly run through them because it make they'll make sense when you talk about them. But if I want to build trust, number one, I need to create safety, both physical and psychological safety in the team. You can't build trust with somebody if they feel their life is at risk. And as an ex-army officer, I know about this. You also can't build trust with somebody if they feel that every time they put their hand up or they ask a question, they're going to get shot down. So that safety piece is absolutely key. We need clear expectations. What do I need from you? What do you need from me to make that happen? So we've got to align our expectations. And when we misalign expectations, that erodes trust. So we want to focus there. We need to be reliable. We need to do what we say we're going to do. We need to turn up when we say we're going to turn up. We need to deliver what we said we're going to deliver. Both ways, manager to leader and leader to manager. Next one, we need to be vulnerable. From a leader's perspective, I don't necessarily have all the answers. I really want your input. Can you share with me your ideas? From an employer, perspective. Well, I am stuck. I'm lost. I'm scared of making a mistake. I'm worried about this. So we need that honest, open conversation by being vulnerable. I is about all about inclusion. So we really want to make sure to build trust that my opinion is valid here. I have a voice in this team. I have a voice in this organization. I'm not marginalized or discriminated against. See clarity. Am I clear on all of the above? Do I know everything that's going on? And have we got some mechanism of staying clear when things get a bit muddy? Things change. Things are volatile. Things get complicated. Mistakes happen. There's that whole, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Well, clarity is all about, so what happens when we get punched in the face? What are we going to do next? And the E of service is all about empathy. So we know this isn't easy. We're all struggling with this. We're all working through these really complex, uncertain, ambiguous challenges. I get it. I've been you. I've been there. I feel for you. So let's work on that together. And so what we do is we help teams to step through the seven elements of service. And that is a way that they can actually start to build trust with each other.
1: I love that you go through and set depth right in this, because there is a depth to trust. And it's interesting, you know, I'm often working with entrepreneurs and CEOs, and Mm -hmm. there is this Belief, And I think it's often true, frankly, Jimmy, is that if they say certain things to be transparent, and if there's not proper training on how that's received, there's a breakage, right? It, it makes things worse when they go into something. So how do you help? People undo that fear or help them understand perhaps, yeah, this is a certain level of trust, which you can do, but there's a other different level where you don't go down to because there's like there's so many layers right on our own personal lives, as an example, versus why we're afraid to speak or why we're afraid to take a particular challenge. Help with that, maybe just go like that example where like somebody's like, man, I've been burned before by telling the truth and being transparent. How do I get overcome that in the future and why why did it not work in the past?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's probably three pieces we can step through here. The first one is it's very rare that somebody gets a negative outcome from over-communicating. Leaders who under-communicate create far more problems than leaders who over-communicate. So if you're erring on the side of, oh, I probably shouldn't say anything because I encourage you to say something, however... The second piece is there is a big difference between communication and broadcasting, and uh, many leaders who think they're great communicators are actually broadcasters. And the analogy I use is it's the difference between having a conversation where you're both involved in that conversation versus grabbing a loud hailer, standing on the hood of your car and shouting at everybody in the middle of a crowd, which is what most leaders do. You know, it's the email blast. It's the roadshow. It's the newsletter, which is a, I've got something to say, here you go. So that. That's the broadcast mechanism versus communication, which is made up of I'll send a message. I'll look to see that you've heard that message and send me some feedback based on that. And so the third piece of getting this right is as a leader, your words are hugely powerful. And if you're a CEO, you've got a big job title or, you know, you're important, you hold high social currency in that organization. What you say is held as gospel. Even if you're just thinking out loud, people take it seriously. And I have a great example of this when I was a GM in an organization and I walked out of a meeting with the board and I walked back into my head of sales and head of marketing and I said, you know what, I was just thinking about what we should do about Japan and how we get into that market. And it was just a throwaway comment. You know, I just had a conversation with the CEO and I was like, oh, we should just maybe we should think about that. Three weeks later, a meeting is booked in my diary and the entire sales and marketing team have been spooled up for three weeks working on a feasibility plan for market penetration into Japan. And I was like, well, what is this? And they said, well, we've done a feasibility analysis and we've done an economic analysis and these are the products that would work best. And I was like, oh, okay. So as a leader, making sure that you're very, very clear on the power of your words. And then going, well, if I'm going to communicate, not broadcast, and I'm going to take into account the power of my words, what do I want the people on the receiving end to think, feel and do with this? So I have a message to send, which may be uncomfortable, which may be something that's going to be unpopular. You know, we've got to make budget cuts. We're not going to make our targets this, this quarter, whatever it might be. What do you want the audience to do with that, to feel with that and to think when they read it? When you slow down and spend five minutes just planning out that message based on what do I want them to receive versus what do I want to get off my chest? What we see is the communications dramatically change. And people start to really pay attention to what's the outcome I'm looking for here versus what's the thing I'm trying to say. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, it's not all the things I do. It's the what I do and it's the how I do it that makes the biggest difference.
1: I love that example that you did of saying something about Japan and, and next thing, you know, a few months later or, or, or wherever long, wherever long time. Yeah, period three, was weeks that, that, yeah, three, three weeks. They work solidly for three weeks. Wow. I also appreciate you saying of, it is passing right it just shows you of when we do say things as leaders people do take it as an action or or the gospel as you said right this is this the truth is the dictum and this is what's going to happen to take place and it's not necessarily what we're thinking about as a leader we're just having an ideation it's it's one of the reasons why we can be such bad leaders is especially those who love the the shiny object, right? Oh, I just read this book, right? Yep. You, you know, follow, follow. I read this book and, and, and the next thing you know that people feel like now that's the new management philosophy of the week. And then we start losing real credibility, right? Because we keep on bringing up The next shiny object, the next shiny object, the next thing they're like, they don't even move forward anymore. They just wait and don't even consider doing that Japan project, right? (laughs) That came up with you, because they don't believe actually what you're saying anymore. So it's this really, I think, fascinating part of that trust back and forth. And then once again, this is why we think it's so important to document. Jimmy, I don't know, maybe we could talk about this briefly. I found often in verbal communication, things are really missed, especially when it comes to conflict or clarity of something not getting done. But when you write in an email that, you know, this did not meet expectations, it takes a whole different level of seriousness. I'm curious when you're working with Trust with Teams, how much do you work on the documentation side of it?
0: You know, one of the things that we talk about in all of the workshops is getting stuff on the wall. If you come into a workshop, we call them labs, but if you if you come into a workshop with us, by the end of the day, the wall will be coated in flip charts and post-it notes. Um, or if we're doing it virtually, we have digital versions of flip charts and post-it notes that will allow you to see all the things we've talked about. And over the course of the day, the story builds and captures momentum. And then we make sure we send that through to the leadership team. We say, print this out on A4 or put it on the wall in the notice board or make sure everybody can see this in your team's channel or whatever it might be. And then normally what happens in a lot of businesses is they go, well, that was a super cool day. Back to normal now. And so one of the things that we've learned to implement around that visual representation of what's going on is two things. Number one is what we call a reflect and learn session. So what have you done with that stuff since we last spoke? And what have you learned having done something with it? Or what have you not done with it? And what have you learned from not doing it? Missed opportunity. So that's the first piece. But we also ask people to take a bit of accountability in some of the deliverables that they've agreed. So we should all go and do this. Great. Well, who's going to do it? there's a lot of this going on, right? Because everybody's really busy. So we say, well, okay, let's allocate some responsibility for just leading the charge on this. And then I follow up in an email after the session and say, you know, Carl's going to take the lead on making our draft purpose lineup, or Jimmy's going to take the lead on getting our five objectives published and socialized around the team. And it's not a lot of work, you know, it's 10 minutes, but we just make sure then that's circulated around everybody's emails, because seeing it in the workshop is great. Seeing it go round to 25 people via email and seeing the commentary and seeing it build starts to get that exposure therapy. And what we see with all of these things, when it, whenever you're talking about communication, when you are talk about trust building, when you talk about high performance teams is it's all about repetition, repetition, repetition.
1: Okay. So let's talk about your story a little bit in, in terms of Burnout. So one of the things that's made you passionate in doing what you're doing today is because you had your own getting burnt out, and this is not uncommon, right? You know, there's always different levels of of burnout or hitting rock bottom. Tell us about your story. What what happened to you?
0: You know, it's it's probably a story that's going to be relatively familiar to a lot of people who are high performers. And from our research, what we've discovered actually is it tends to be your highest engaged, most motivated, most passionate, most committed staff members who are at the biggest risk of burnout. And one thing also I think is worth clarifying is burnout is not tired out or stressed out or worn out. It's all of the above plus. And so if I kind of paint the picture of um, what life was like for me back in 2016, 2017, I took on a GM role in 2015 in an organization that was extremely exciting. It was going through a transformation. It was a, a tertiary education institution. So they were going through a whole revolution, essentially in pedagogical model. So the way they teach, and it was going to a flipped classroom facilitated methodology which they were trying to then bring the students and the staff along the way and i took over as the gm of the international function so responsible for all of the international students with a team of 30 odd people spread across the globe and that seemed really exciting and i was very excited about the opportunities that that might afford then on top of that the board decided that they were going to change the physical footprint of the campus because of this new model less buildings were required we could redevelop some buildings we could cells some buildings. And so curriculum management was then also overlaid with timetable management, trying to squeeze people into the right holes. Then they decided to outsource the entire customer acquisition model to a third party service. So all of the my team who were responsible for admissions had to essentially document and transition all of that stuff over a year period to this outsource provider. Unfortunately, it didn't go very well. And the outsource provider was constantly calling on resource to deliver that. Then there was a legislative change. Which meant that overnight, uh, my $40 million budget suddenly was cut in half and the bottom line lost 20 million dollars in a day and the board's expectation were that we were going to find a way of making that up weren't we because we were the cash cow business unit for the rest of the organization then they decided that it was actually very important that we diversified the way we made revenue so we had to change from hey students come and study in new zealand to we need to sell academic products offshore develop new services create quality assurance delivery Agreements. And so my job transitioned from essentially coming in, restructuring a team, and transitioning us to this new pedagogical model through supporting students to a very, very complex multiple project leading. I was the project sponsor on three of those projects in meetings constantly from 7 a.m. till 7 p.m., but also traveling 10 days out of 14, working at a hotel, waking up at three in the morning, and working on New Zealand hours so that I could then go to meetings all day and then fly back working on the plane. And I got tired, you know, but I wasn't just tired. I was also seeing a struggle for everything. we, Every progress we made, it was like one step forward, three steps backwards. Every can of worms I opened was filled with cans of worms. The deeper I dug, the more I found legacy issues. It started becoming really hard to see the positives in anything. Um, And I got quite jaded and quite cynical I had three bosses in 18 months, members of the executive team kept on leaving. So then I was handed on to somebody else and you know, when you have a new boss, You have to try and impress them and step up and create your reputation again my peers all the gms around me were leaving um, or being made redundant because the business was losing money so they all my network and my support group were disappearing Um, i was told you need to be innovative but don't try anything too risky so my ability and to try new things was really constrained and i didn't take a day off in two years even when i was back in the uk seeing my parents i would work through the night and then spend the day with my family. And in 2016, um, I started to feel tired. I was also doing an MBA, so I had a lot of my free time was occupied. Um, but I started coming home from night and just drinking a bottle of wine just to wind out. After finishing work at 1am, have a bottle of wine, go to bed, wake up in the morning, lots of caffeine to get going in the morning again for my first meeting, live on caffeine through the day and then bottle of wine when I came home. Sports, hobbies, free time, friends went out the window. And then I just woke up one morning and I was like, do you know what? I don't think I can go to work today. I don't think, I don't think I've got it in me. I don't think I can. I can't make a decision. I was getting more and more stressed. I was micromanaging the team more and more. I couldn't delegate anymore because they were overloaded already. So I was having to take more and more on. Mistakes were being made in other parts of the organization, which were affecting us, which caused investigations to have to happen. It was a mess. And I was in mental quicksand. I couldn't function. I was so tired. And I just realized that I think I'd reached the end. I just could, I, I couldn't go to work that day. So I took a couple of days of sick leave and I ended up resigning from that role because it was just completely dysfunctional for my life. And the organization subsequently went through some pretty significant government interventions because it was entirely dysfunctional. But unfortunately, you know, myself and many of my peers paid the price for the way that organization was being run and and the own choices that I made. And this is the important part, the choices I made, which exacerbated my descent into this plug hole, which we now
1: call burnout. That's a good story, Jimmy, but a painful <laughs> one. That's one of the things I truly appreciate about so many people who come on to our podcast is people who come on are extraordinarily successful, but it just shows you that so many of us have these crazy stories, right? Where there is a rock bottom and I just can only imagine, I was thinking as you're talking about how many strategic plans that never got, you know, just got trashed, right? You know, everything time and time again. And then whenever you have something so significant like that, like a revenue get cut in half, that is a uh, massive and you have to make extraordinary changes so quickly to be able to get things work. And, and I loved it when you talked about, oh, now we're going to diversify. Well, folks, it, you can't just diversify overnight. Don't not be too risky. Act- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great story. So so here you are. Now your your key is to help others not be burnt out, right? That's a big part of this high performance trade because it, I loved it how you said it. You said it very well. It's actually your best performers, the highly engaged, they're the ones who are burning out. And this is like the scary part, right? Because we we talk about everyone who's disengaged, right? It's pretty significant amount of people that are not engaged in companies, but then you have the highly engaged who want to be there, want to be successful and they're not. So what are the key things that you work with? And this is often missed in organizations. I can be in very high, what I call high achiever organizations, but have no strategy and they go nowhere. And and you were just talking about that. You just gave specific six examples I think it was of, of different things that the sales team was responsible for. Well, if there all doing those six things, like if they think that's their purpose and goal, then they're not focused on anything. They're focused on too many things. And then mm-hmm. then you have literally conflict.
0: Paddling as hard as they can, but in like 360 degrees. So that boat, despite all this effort, is not really moving anywhere, anywhere fast. And it's probably just drifting with the wind, to be honest. And you'd be surprised how many teams think they are very aligned and are actually really misaligned. And because of that misalignment, you get an enormous amount of effort being expended by all the people in that team who are engaged, motivated, wanting to do a good job, committed, working hard. You know, These are not the people who are like, I don't care, I'm not even paddling. These are the people like, come on, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. But because of this Misalignment. You've got people making decisions based on different priorities. You've got people allocating their time and energy based on different priorities. You've got people committing resources and funding and budgets based on different priorities. And it's almost like I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. And we're paddling exactly opposite to each other, but we kind of want the same thing, right? And so one of the key interventions we do in nearly every team is we get very clear on purpose. What's the purpose of this team? And based on that purpose, What are the priorities of this team? And we have uh, some some exercises and activities that we take the team through to get them talking about this. And what we normally see is, you know, one to two degrees of differentiation. So I'll give you an example. I worked with a pharmaceutical business, large pharmaceutical business, and we talked about one of their sales teams. And I said, well, are we clear on the purpose of the team? And it was like, 100%. Yeah, definitely. We know exactly what we do. We're a sales team. I was like, cool. So what's the purpose of the team? Why does this team exist? Write down your answers. Let's see what we get. And this is pointless because we all know why we're here. I was like, cool. So ru- let's do this. Let's write this down. And we got the answers were we're here to move more product. We're here to support our customers. We're here to maximize revenue. We're here to make profit. We're here to make sure that we move things out of the warehouse into our customers' warehouses as effectively as possible, as quickly as possible. So all of Those are correct. Yes, they all a reason why a sales team might exist, but the priorities of the set based on each of those different paradigms is significantly different. What we saw was unknowingly they're all kind of heading in the same direction. But if you stand on the top of a hill and you're two people side by side and you just point outwards by one or two degrees and you start walking, by the time you've gone a kilometre, you're 100 metres apart. By the time you've gone 10 kilometres. You're a thousand meters apart. So just that minor divergence takes you off on different tracks. So over the course of a quarter or a year, the we're focused on revenue versus we're focused on profitability, you're going to be focusing on different things. So it was really important for teams to get their heads around this. And Because of this maximum effort and I'm pushing against everybody else or pulling against everybody else like a giant tug of war in this rowboat, that's what burns people out. That's what gets people tired. That's what makes people frustrated because like, no matter how hard I try, it's not making a difference. No matter how hard I try, the boss keeps on asking me to do different stuff and I don't get it. And it's frustrating me. And we get the team saying, well, screw this. This is pointless. I'm going to leave and it's like, oh, Carl, Jimmy's left. Can, can you pick up his work as well? So you can take that on. They're like, whoa, Christ, I'm rowing as hard as I can. And you've just given me more to do. Now I'm even more tired. So I'm going to have to give up more time for my nights and weekends to make this work because I'm committed and you can see how it unravels.
1: I love that example. And this is often missed in organizations. I could be in very high, what I call high achiever organizations. But have no strategy and they go nowhere. And and you were just talking about that. You just gave specific six examples, I think it was, of of different things that the sales team was responsible for. Well, if they're all doing those six things. Like if they think that's their purpose and goal, then they're not focused on anything. They're focused on too many things. And then mm-hmm. then you have literally conflict, right? They don't understand literally what their purpose is. And then secondly, I think there's such a, we talk about this often, it's not necessarily the focus on the outcome. The only thing you can control is what you can control, the leading indicators. Sales as an outcome. It's not what you're doing. And we often miss how to get there right and and that's really the things that we should be in control of right and moving forward and understanding the things that are really moving the dial because otherwise you get once again a lot of busy frustration you know people not focused doing the right things moving towards it so we have this problem which i oh jimmy which always drives me crazy of podcasts is that we have a limited amount of time so we're gonna bounce through a couple questions here that I like to ask it consistently in podcasts and and what we do measure success podcast. So first from your business perspective, and you could say this either from your client perspective or your own business, how do you measure success with your business?
0: So we have two ways of measuring success, Um, the really obvious one and the one that makes a difference. So the really obvious one is you measure staff engagement, which is the engagement survey or the happy meter or whatever you want to call it. Good. Not great. Why not great? Because uh, it's only generally as good as the day it was taken. It's generally aggregated data. So you lose the devil in the detail. And it's also by the time you get to an executive team looking at an, entirely bit, an entire business, those little pockets where there's hot spots or or cold spots tend to get lost. So that's one way of measuring. What we like to do is we like to look at a bit deeper at the data. So we work with organizations to help them track things like employee turnover, employee turnover in the first year, employee turnover in the first six months. The number of disciplinary incidents, the number of absentees and days, the number of people who have called the EAP services or the employee assistance programs, the number of people who've been promoted internally, the number of people who've been promoted cross functionally internally. And when you start to aggregate this data, you start to get a much more realistic picture over a longer period of time versus the survey we took today, you start to see a trend across the year. You also start to see hot spots and cold spots in the business. So you can go, wow, in this business unit, they're cycling staff at 40% of the year. What's going on there? Is there um, a high number of disciplinary incidents? Are lots of people being written up? Are lots of people calling in for counselling services? Maybe we've got a leadership challenge there. Maybe there's a resourcing challenge. You know, we don't automatically blame people. We blame process. So what's the process that's broken here that we can unravel and support people to make the process? better um equally might have a really bright spot what are those guys and girls doing that's absolutely amazing which processes are working really well there how do we emulate that and cross-functionally promote it across the organization so that's how we measure our success is moving the dial on the people stuff importantly what we see is when the dial moves on the people stuff the dial moves on the profit stuff as well because at the end of the day a lot of leaders senior leaders are very much of the opinion that What we do is the fluffy stuff. And so we're very, very conscious to make sure that everything we do is directly attributable to bottom line
1: performance. I love that. And I think people are listening would appreciate that as well, because that is always that tough thing. Are are we doing this to make people feel good? The answer is yes, but we're making them feel good because it's a leading indicator to getting better outcomes. 100%. And, and, And I appreciate you tying that in together you know, and how, how you can really make a difference there. So give me two or three habits you do on a personal level consistently. You, you're doing a lot of stuff. You, you were talking about what you've been doing, books been released, and business has been growing, and you're having a greater impact. You have a podcast. You are getting ready to work on being in, in TEDx speaking opportunities. So help us with what do you do on a consistent basis to make sure that you can deliver high performance for yourself?
0: Yeah, good question. So number one, as, as an ex-military person, um, I have a great reliance on physical exertion to to keep me sane. So I really enjoy, I go to a, a gym called F45, which is a, a high intensity workout. Um, and I'm there most days a week for 45 minutes in, done, out. And I really enjoy the fact that I get the accomplishment and the endorphins and and that m- sort of momentary aggressive push to get the stress out of my system but equally i really enjoy going for a long walk so the days i don't do f45 i'll go and walk for an hour with an audiobook and just tune out I'm often um, either early in the morning or late in the evening. It's where I let my brain switch off the executive function and switch on the daydreaming, I call it meandering function. And that's where all the magic happens, actually. And we've got some great research in chapter five of the book, which talks about uh, the two different TV channels in your brain, basically. And you need to turn off the executive TV channel and turn on QVC shopping and this you know, meaningless music in the background that lets all the stuff process. So, that's probably my other great love. If I get time, I love to go scuba diving. That is my number one hobby. But um, time and getting out and about for a half day is is a big ask at times, especially with a wife and a child on the way. So, there's lots of commitments of my time right now. But I find scuba diving is one of the most amazing things for mindfulness. So, it is like meditating underwater, it's all about breath work and buoyancy and calm to make your air go as long as possible and just looking at cool things like fish and sharks and turtles so they're kind of the things i do for myself and then one of the things i discovered probably much later in life is cooking and we know again from our research in in chapter five that there's there's two types of downtime there's what we call consumptive downtime and creative downtime consumptive downtime would be netflix alcohol partying it's where you're consuming something in the hope it's gonna relax you. And I know from my own experience burning out, Netflix and wine doesn't work. The opposite is a creative habit where you're adding value and energy to the world, but in a non-executive way. So for me, it's throwing things in a pan and seeing what happens. It could be painting, it could be uh, drawing, it could be journaling. That's a creative downtime habit. And we know from the research that that helps again to access that default mode network piece of your brain, that daydreaming TV channel. And so they're the things I try and make sure I add back in whenever, whenever I can.
1: Great examples there. And I appreciate you you doing some, what I'd call more traditional, right? Things that people talk about in terms of like doing exercise or walking, or hard exercise and then doing walking more soft, but then just the other elements, I mean, of, of cooking and scuba diving. I mean, very different but it's part of that, that broader picture of helping to make sure that your body, right, is able to continue to perform the great output. You know, you're finding these other avenues in a healthy way, right, more healthy way that it seems like, you know, some of your past efforts that you recognize, hey, you could still wake up in the morning and be ready to go again, right, you know, without yeah. losing yeah. kind of your day ahead. That's always that big wake up call, right? Of The activity am I doing, is it going to help tomorrow? Or are we sacrificing tomorrow? Exactly
0: that. One of the activities that we love to recommend people who are worrying about this is to do your burnout thermometer. And imagine literally a thermometer with the burnout at the top of the meter. And you go, well, when I hit my 80% mark, what does that look like? And when I'm over 80%, what does that look like? And what does that look like is how am I acting? How am I feeling? What emotions are going on? Am I more snappy? Am I am I shorter? Am I feeling stressed and anxious? And when I hit my 80% signal, I know I've got to do something and have some discipline to sort that out. Because if I get to 100%, again, I'm in the whirlpool and I'm not going to get out. So I've got to spot the danger signs. And what most of us do is we go, yeah, I'm super stressed right now. I'm super, but I'll just go to work again today and do, do even more. Or I just need to do this extra meeting when the best thing you could do is go, I'm going to take 24 hours for me. I might still be at work, but I'm just going to take it down a notch to give myself some recovery time or just going to close the laptop at 5 or 6 p.m. tonight, not work through to midnight because I just need to get some good night's sleep. You know, so it's, it's knowing your thermometer.
1: Now you're on a book that has inspired you that you'd recommend for others.
0: So many, so many good books out at the moment. The one I have really enjoyed reading this year is called The Culture Code by an amazing guy called Daniel Coyle. Really, really enjoyed his book. And it lines up a lot with some of the stuff we talk about in the high-performance teams and leadership space. The other one I mentioned a little bit earlier, Stephen Covey's Trust and Inspire. Again, a very easy read. And he, I like the fact that both of those use anecdotal stories to bring to life the examples, much the same as we did in our own book. It's like, how do you paint the picture in people's minds by a story, which makes it tangible for people to grasp the concepts.
1: Great examples there. Jamie. How, how can people connect, by your book and learn more about you and your organization?
0: Very active on LinkedIn. Uh, try and share as much value as we can on LinkedIn with um, audience and always open to conversations. Uh, if you're interested in the book, we currently have digital copies available on Jimmy Burroughs.com and this click book at the top of the page we think that purpose is so important that we give away the chapter all about purpose for free but if you want the whole book there's a pay what you want option on the page and you can download the book from there very soon as in in the next couple of weeks we are going through the Amazon approval process to get in print books so we want them available from November so because they're going to make the perfect Thanksgiving or stocking stuffer for Christmas
1: Jimmy it's been an Absolute pleasure to have you on the Merges podcast today.
0: Thanks so much, Carl. Really enjoyed chatting with you. And um, thanks for the opportunity
1: to connect. Absolutely. And to everyone else who's listening, we hope you've enjoyed this. We encourage you to seek out, learn more about what Jimmy's doing. I think it's incredible and and some, some serious and important topics, right? In terms of, hey, you could be a high performer. How do we help curtail that burnout? And how do we create more trust in teams? Because the why, not only does it help out those individuals, but it helps create more value and your organization as well and so jim i think the great insight you just scratched the surface i recognize you know you have a much detailed research-based approach where they're really right but it creates real results i encourage you to look up jimmy what he's doing and as we always like to say we're wishing you the very best at measuring your success have a great day thanks for listening to the measure success podcast we'll see you again next time to learn from the best Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.